they had a big, big exit and not the first time. Venture capitalists understand that. Big corporations, they don't understand that yet, right? So we have to show them you need to apply the same logic, not just in corporate venture capital, not just in corporate venture capital, but also in the way you invest in internal innovation teams. It's the same logic. You need to build a portfolio. So I guess my next question is, let's talk about desirability there. Let's let's pick one of these. So let's say you're coming up with something and you know there's there's enough people in related Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Alex Osterwalder. Alex, thanks for making time. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've done a lot of things. You've come up with a lot of great books, uh, a couple of which are a couple of my favorites here. For people who don't know about your background, how do you sum it up for them? Like, I'm just passionate about making tools that help business people get the job done, in particular in a space where concepts are fuzzy, like business models, value propositions, culture, (laughs) portfolios, right? So we try to create tools that help people just get the job done. I need to map out my business model. I need to test my business model. And I think we're becoming a little bit more like the medical profession. You need to learn the anatomy of physiology of business and innovation and entrepreneurship. But then you also need to kind of, you know, practice that to get good at it. If you just read the theory, you can't become an innovator. If you just do, you're not as good as if you learned the physiology and anatomy. So we try to make those tools so you better understand physiology and anatomy and become a better practitioner. So, you know, business model generation, hasn't that sold like over a million copies already? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fun, you know, that a lot of books are out there. But what I'm more proud of is that the tool, the, the one tool that we started with, and no, no single tool will solve every job, right? We never had that intention. But the business model canvas, which was the heart of the first book, it really spread around the world and people started using it and it creates value for them. That's what I'm most proud of. Number of book souls is a nice way to keep score. But at the end of the day, if we don't make a difference, you know, and we don't help people create value, well, what are book sales for? So I think that's really fun to see that now book sales are over, some are probably around 2 million. But what's more interesting is that there are really literally millions and millions of people using the business small canvas from startups all the way to large corporations, which is surprising, right? You think, well, tools should be for these or for them. But, you know, every company, every organization has a business model. Even, you know, states have business models if you want. Like the revenue stream is, is from citizens in, in the form of a tax payment. So uh, every organization has a business model. So, and can you tell us about the last book and the next one coming? So <laughs> the last book summarizes quite a few things. We call it, arrogantly, we call it the invincible company. Now, there is, of course, no such thing as an invincible company, but what you can have is a company that, you know, has the humility and stays, you know, keeps this attitude of day one, like Amazon or like Jeff Bezos likes to say, and constantly reinvents itself. So we looked at the characteristics of the companies that really stayed ahead. Number one, they constantly reinvent themselves. Number two, They compete on superior business models, not just products, technology innovation, but really superior business models. And number three, most interesting, 
they transcend industry boundaries. So you can't classify them in, oh, they just make mobile phones or they just, you know, they're just, you know, in banking. No, the greatest business models, they break out of these traditional industry boundaries. And I like to say, you know, <laughs> Michael Porter's Five Forces, that's 1985. Like it's time for some new thinking where actually the greatest companies, they define industries and arenas, they make them, they're not a victim of five forces anymore. So thinking about the material that you do, you know, for me, it's fun to hear you talk about Ping An and for people that don't know about this company, you know, I think they've got $128 billion US under in assets, 190,000 employees. And you talk about this co-CEO, I was reading your Harvard Business Review article about how Peter Ma brought on Jessica Ta and, and this idea of, of really like an entrepreneurial CEO or an entrepreneurial co-CEO. And I think, you know, our consulting firm, we, we have a number of public company clients and, and I can really see such an advantage for that. And I think my question is applying this to the small, the, the small business, the, the startup, where very often we have the, the crazy idea guy, visionary waving his arms around. And then we've got like the adult supervision, the person who's like, I don't want to hear what we're doing in 15 years. I want to hear what we're doing in 15 minutes. Can you talk about all this work you do advising all these great companies around the world and, and just advice specifically for the startups in, in dealing with that friction of, you know, they are trying to exploit the, you know, they're trying to get the most out of the few clients they have already and be visionary enough and adaptable enough for the new things but they're maybe driving their co-founders nuts because they want to try new stuff all the time. Can you talk about that tension? <laughs> yeah, so I think when you're in the startup phase, you have one goal and one goal only. That's to find that business model. Actually, you could split it into two goals if you want. It's finding a value proposition that customers care about and a business model that you know can create value for the organization and then scale and then you have to actually scale it right but first you need to find you need to search and find enough evidence that you're on the right path and then you scale it so before you've found that and scale that if scaling is your goal or just make it work you shouldn't do anything else right? so that's the number one kind of goal once you have a business model that works at the size that you desire so some companies want to grow to 50 million 100 million or billion that's your ambition, then you need to search until you find that, right? But, you know, at one point when that's kind of working, it's not about innovation anymore. It's about managing in a business model that has proven itself. But you don't stop there. You need to then reinvent and kind of, you know, go back to your entrepreneurial roots. But what traditionally happens with most companies is they grow successful and they stop they kind of forget their entrepreneurial roots they become a successful company that manages a successful business model and that's the risk when you get stuck there you know some companies have fallen into that trap dell at one point fell into that trap nespresso you know the daughter company of nestle fell into that trap you're so successful and you're so preoccupied with scaling that you actually forget to reinvent yourself and then you need to actually find those roots again but there's another problem. Some companies, they never make it to the scaling. Why? Because the founders are so in love with inventing, they're actually not comfortable with scaling and managing. So you, the, the, the kind of dual pair that you mentioned, you know, the visionary CEO, founder or founding team, and then a operator, adult supervision, if you want, 
that can scale that business model, you know, that is, that is something that's very important that you say at one point, you shouldn't, you know, before you've found that business model, you shouldn't reinvent yourself all the time. So, you know, Steve Blank, um, uh, my friend likes to say that founders actually like chaos. So sometimes they try to recreate chaos. So instead of starting to put in place processes, starting to scale, they create chaos with completely new ideas. But there is a phase where you actually need to put some order into the process. You found the business model. Now you need to scale. Everything becomes a little bit cleaner. But then there's the risk with becoming too clean and you just manage what you have. You're so successful with one business model that, you know, disruptive innovation theory, your success becomes your Achilles heel, right? So that's the whole kind of thing. You know, you need to get from zero 10 million, 100 million, a billion, if that's your, kind of your trajectory. But then you need to reinvent yourself. And that's why Jeff Bezos likes to talk about the, the culture of day one. And then if you go to Ping An to use some examples that we don't use all the time, they created that culture of day one by giving innovation power and saying, managing what we have is important. But if we just do that, we're going to get killed. So Peter Ma, the founder of Ping An, was very smart in saying, the business model in banking and insurance is dead. We're going to get killed by tech companies. So he said, we have to become a tech company, but we can't kind of just change what we have. We need to create an additional culture, the culture of a tech company. And they shouldn't fight. They should be in harmony, right? So what they did right is they gave innovation power with Jessica Tana's co-CEO. They invested into that. And they really started to explore and they accepted that they wouldn't get it right immediately. So one of the famous things is, you know, Peter Ma telling Jessica Tan that at the beginning, Jessica, you know, you're going to get it wrong. That's a way to start a job where your, your boss tells you you're going you're gonna to fail. But what he meant is you're not going to get it right immediately. And you have the license to experiment a lot and fail a lot until you figure it out. Because Pingan was not a tech company. So they gave innovation power and they created this whole new engine, the innovation, what we call explore engine. So the best companies in the world, they have both an exploit engine, they manage what they have, and an explore engine to invent the future. But when you're a startup, you don't even need to think about exploit. You just need to start to scale until you have one successful business model. So it's like a transition phase at one point when you try not to miss that. Some companies become very successful and then they disappear because they forgot to reinvent themselves. They were too successful. So I want to take a slight tangent. Then I want to follow this train of thought we were just on. You know, as an art school dropout originally, I appreciate the visual aspects of your book so much. I'm interested in any challenges or any guidance for authors who want to, to make their next book more visual or entrepreneurs yeah. who want to write a book and they really identify with your format and they want to take lessons from what's been so successful for you. So it's a very different way of crafting a book if you want. And I believe there's some things that shouldn't be described with words because you need a thousand words and you can still not describe it. And then people say, yeah, because one, you know, a picture can describe a thousand words, but so the point is you still need to create very good visuals that actually simplify your message. So you'll always need both text and visuals to create a very clear message. I think people are sometimes either writers or they're visual thinkers, but what you need is kind of both and bring it together. What we did is we said, we're going to create books in a different way. This is not text. This is a collection of spreads of double pages, right? where we have a series of ideas that we want to get across and each double page will hold one idea. 
And as soon as it doesn't fit on a double page, it's probably two ideas. So that's why our books actually turn into something that you can browse. Because, you know, you can go through the different spreads and you can get something from each spread. At the end of the day, they all need to fit together so they're not disconnected pieces. So we have a really strong story flow. But the one thing you want to make sure when you start to work like this is that you really identify the core ideas you want to get across and you break them down into smaller pieces. And you'll, ident- you'll, you'll start to realize if you are you know, somebody who creates concepts and can work like this or if you're a writer. Writers, they actually figure out the structure while writing. This in the behind me is the Invincible Company. And every page actually started out like this as a sticky note, as one sticky note with one idea. And then we refine it and then becomes maybe a rough sketch, a bigger sticky note with more stuff until it turns into a visual spread. But it will never go to the next page. So you'll have a collection of spreads. So in this case, behind me, I think you can see different business model patterns. So you'd have 10 spreads with the same structure, each one describing a different case in a very structured way. But we think in terms of double pages. So I don't know. I think that the the most important thing is you need to find a designer who won't just put lipstick on the pig, but a designer who wants to understand business and who wants to make the concepts clear. Because design is not about colors. Design is about functionality, the simplicity of understanding. So the big thing here is most of these spreads went between through, I'd say, between five and 20 iterations. So it's as if you would rewrite every single page of a text-based book 15 to 20 times, right? So we went through them again and again and again. We tested them with real people to see, do people understand? So we iterate a lot. We, we treat each page, if you want, as a almost like one web page with the user interface and user experience. This idea of having so many collaborators, can you talk about the advantage of that and any advice for others that want to follow in your footsteps? So it's almost like uh, designing a product, right? So we had, you know, kind of product owners that was even myself. We had a design team. We had a research team. And we did this across the world. The big one you want to keep in mind is time zones. It's one we got into a tricky situation where we had people in Melbourne. We had people in L.A., and I was in the middle. (laughs) And then it gets difficult to find time zones that work for everybody. That's one aspect. But then also getting everybody comfortable working the same way. Again, we start with very rough prototypes. We give design critique, design feedback, which means people need to be very comfortable with their work being criticized in a positive way so we can actually advance. So rather than refining at the beginning, we work with very rough concepts until we kind of get it right. And, and that's how you iterate until you find the solution. So again, that's why these pages went through so many iterations because at the beginning, they're rough, we discuss, and then they get refined, and then we test them, and then people say, I don't understand this. It's user user experience and user interface. And if not everybody's aligned in the way of working, it's not going to work out. So everybody needs to have the same philosophy in creating content. And that is something, you know, for us, it took a long time until we found the right people who have the same content philosophy. Well, and I'm interested both on feedback on a book or a product or a business model. I know you're a big proponent of get out and talk to people and get out and test. And 
I'm interested in any thoughts you have on navigating. You know, you get all this data, you get all this feedback. Any guidance you have on sorting through sorting through the feedback you get and, and how to decide what's the insight to build on and what are the insights that maybe don't apply? Yeah, so let me actually quickly sketch this out. I want to draw this because it's a very important thing because in the startup world, and it's the same kind of for book, people would say, oh, when do I know that I'm right? Like, when is that data point? And, and there is no such thing as, Lights are going to go on that shining path. Like That would be nice, but ask any entrepreneur or product creator, that never really happens, right? So you start out with an idea of how this could kind of look, and you know you want to go to build a real business, or in our case, you know, this was a, a book that needs to resonate. You start out, in our case, we had these concepts, we had these ideas, we knew how it would look like, but we did admit that uncertainty and risk is at its maximum, meaning we don't know if people are going to be interested. We don't know if people are going to kind of like it the way we create it. So our only task is to decrease risk and uncertainty, okay? Decrease risk and uncertainty. So what's the first thing we would do? Get out of the building using kind of Steve Blank terminology and start talking to customers about jobs, pains, gains. They tell you, no, no, but that's not really a problem for me. You just failed. Great. That was one experiment. You did interviews. You maybe talked to five to 10 people. Well, now I'm going to make this kind of PDF brochure, or in our case, a spread of an idea, see if it gets the concept across. Okay, second experiment. Still wrong? We can pivot if you want. But you start, you do many, many different types of experiments, and you start to see the patterns. And then the more refined stuff, let's say we do a technology prototype, or in our case, the more refined version of a spread. You know, we've already learned a lot, but we're still probably wrong. We're going to decrease the risk even more. But you increase the investment in your testing with the decreasing risk. So you're not going to start with the refined, in our case, you know, the, we're going to refined spread of the book. You're not going to start with building a prototype. So sometimes in the lean startup world, people say, oh, you got to build, measure, learn. Guess what? Engineers are going to go build something. That's the most costly thing you can do, even in the software world. Why don't you just first talk to people about jobs, pains, and gains, right? So you constantly adapt. In the business world, we would use a business model canvas, value proposition canvas. In our case, we just use them, you know, first talking about concepts, and then we use spreads, low fidelity, high fidelity. But most important is that you start cheap and you only increase fidelity and cost with the decreasing risk and uncertainty. And once you do several experiments from talking to surveys to pricing experiments, that's when you start to see the patterns. So the patterns do emerge, but you'll always have conflicting data. There'll always be people who tell you, oh, I don't like that. That's not going to work. So there's never a clear shining path. But now here's the important thing for product creators, for business creators, I believe you need to have a very strong vision, but to use Steve Blank's words, you need to be sure you don't kind of mix up vision and hallucination. The, the, the line is very, very fine, right? So you constantly adapt the steps you take. You adapt your idea without compromising the big vision, but you, you change and adapt the pieces to get there. And that's the approach you need to take. Don't you selectively listen to customers. So talking to customers, doing experiments doesn't mean to do everything they say. It just means making informed decisions. We like to call that data informed, right? So you make data informed decisions rather than saying, I'm a visionary. I'm going to get it right. 
Because the danger is, and that happens often to first-time entrepreneurs or managers who become entrepreneurs, they put a lot of money into their vision and then they realize later on when they wasted it, you know, the vision was a hallucination. Many things out there, Quibi is the latest one, but you know, there's been huge failures like Better Place, this whole idea of launching an electric vehicle with battery swapping stations. That was a beautiful vision. And, and you know, I would have loved that to work. The problem was the vision was a hallucination because they didn't test it enough and they didn't adapt it enough until it would work. Now you take Tesla as a counterexample. They did exactly the kind of approach that I showed you. From the beginning, they had testing in their DNA. They started to test from the beginning and they went on to do that you know, uh, along the way. So testing is crucial even when you have a big vision like Tesla had at the beginning. Big vision doesn't mean not testing. Quite the contrary. The bigger the investment, the bigger the capital expenditures, the more you should actually test because the bigger the risk, you're going to waste a ton of money. So can, can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic of, you know, maybe like sticking with the destination, but becoming more flexible on the vehicle is kind of the way I'm interpreting that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you, I'll give you a nice example, a successful one. If you take um, Netflix, Right? They had this vision of streaming video. But at the time when they were launching, the founders, the co-founders knew the internet is not ready. So what did they do? They came up with an intermediary business model, which was already disruptive enough, right? DVD by mail. But that was their intermediary business model to get out there, to get the business started, to be ready once they could shift towards streaming. So they didn't compromise on the vision of streaming. They just started out with a more feasible business model with the environment was, that was already there. So what you want to do is when you shape your ideas with the business model canvas and value proposition canvas, and you ask yourself, what are the underlying risks? Desirability, feasibility, viability, and adaptability. You start to test. And based on the data you get back, you adapt your idea until you find something that can work. But it doesn't mean you're going to compromise your bigger picture vision, right? So you, there are always things you can do on the path to that bigger vision. And it's actually pretty rare that you would change the vision, except if you, of course, run out of money. And now the reality is that a lot of startups will fail. And that's okay because, you know, that's how you learn. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs are successful the third or fourth time. Just nobody knows that they were already in four startups before they started their own. So they're on the cover of a magazine and everybody says, oh, wow, creative genius. No, it's not. They actually learned a lot before. They learned a lot of failure. So we need to accept failure and process as part of the journey and kind of demystify, you know, those people who we put up there on a pedestal. They failed a lot until they succeeded. It's just that we don't see the failure. And what's good news now is we can instrumentalize failure and turn it more into experimentation and keep the costs of failure very low. But still, at the end of the day, if you really have a revolutionary idea, maybe the timing is wrong, maybe the infrastructure is not there, you might fail. And that's okay because there's this whole venture capital system that has that goal to invest in entrepreneurs that might actually fail. But you get a second chance, right? How many entrepreneurs got fun founded, funded by the same venture capital firm. And it was the second time that they had a big exit and not the first time. Venture capitalists understand that. Big corporations, they don't understand that yet, right? So we have to show them you need to apply the same logic, not just in corporate venture capital, not just in corporate venture capital, but also in the way you invest in internal innovation teams. It's the same logic. You need to build a portfolio. 
So I guess my next question is, let's talk about desirability there. Let's, let's pick one of these. So let's say you're coming up with something and you know there's, there's enough people in related space that have a lot of clients, right? So somebody is finding this desirable. But when people are first getting out there, they're not having customers jump all over it, right? And so the, they're, they're sorting through the like, is the, you know, it's like they can feel somewhat confident. The product is pretty desirable because other, other people are selling something similar and it's selling and people are using it. But for some reason, the way we're presenting it or there's something about us that's giving people pause or can, can you help maybe give us some different levers? We go out, we have the interview, people say it's interesting, but they're not actually parting with dollars and, and sorting through some of that. So you're actually pointing to one of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make, which is they start with product, right? They will test the product. Now, if, if I have this product and customers don't like it, and maybe it's, oh, others have products and customers like it. What's wrong? You don't actually know what the underlying jobs, pains, and gains are that lead the customer to desire this product. So before you think product, even if you have a vision of your product, put it in the back of your head. Forget the product and try to deeply understand your customer's motivations, jobs, pains, and gains. Try to figure out what are they trying to get done when they buy that other product? Don't try to copy the product. Try to understand the underlying motivations. We call that jobs, pains, and gains. Why are customers buying that? Oh, because they want to get faster from A to B. Oh, because they want to look good. If you don't understand the underlying jobs, pains, and gains, you're going to make a product you don't really know. And sometimes even entrepreneurs, they have a product that kind of succeeds, but they don't even know why it's succeeding. And that's not good. So... The best thing is you first get a really strong grip on customer motivation, customer needs, the jobs, pains, and gains. Once you have validation of that, you know there is something there. They need something. And if now this is the wrong one and they say they don't like this, you know that it's because this kind of product is wrong. So you try to change it and adapt to the jobs, pains, and gains you identified in the market. So there's one thing that I think very few entrepreneurs are good at and innovators to rank what are the biggest jobs and what are they really trying to get done? What's really crucial? What are the biggest pains? What's the number one burning thing around the five pains they have? Oh, my customers talk to me about five things that annoy them. Okay, show me with evidence what's the most important one. Show me that you have 50% of all of your customers telling you that's the biggest pain they have. And not just pains, but also objectives. Oh, 50% of customers in this market say that they have growth targets of over 10%. So you just figured out, not a pain, you figured out an, an objective that they have. Too few entrepreneurs and innovators have a deeply quantitative understanding of customers. That's what you need to start with. When you have that, actually the product innovation almost emerges on its own because then you can start to look at the features you need to twist. You look at the technological capabilities that you need to improve. So too often, people start with technology. They wasted hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars tweaking a feature that doesn't relate to any important job pain or gain. So if you copy other products, you're going to have a superficial copying, right? And there's some tweets out there. I don't remember who made this tweet, but somebody said... If you're watching your competitors' products all the time and you're obsessed by them, your product is going to look like you're 
like your competitors behind, right? Because all you're doing is kind of following the taillight. So copying and competition doesn't really matter. What you want is to focus on your customers. There is an experiment type that's, that's powerful. You take your competitor's product and you start having a conversation with the customers to understand the underlying motivations, why they appreciate this. Not, oh, because of the yellow. No, you try to figure out, does this help you do something better, a better job? This helps me actually really stay on target for those 10% increase in sales I need every year. That's what this product does. So you know the exact single feature that makes this product desirable. Then they will also tell you, but you know, there's another thing here this uses a lot of energy and we're not able to you know, kind of meet our, our, our green energy targets because of this. You just figured out why. But you need to understand the why of customers, not the product itself. So people are too product focused, but the product only creates value in the context of customer jobs, pains, and gains for very specific customer segments. So let's say somebody listening to this is thinking, okay, I believe Alex, I'm going to go gather some more data. Can you give us some example questions about jobs? Yeah, so you would start to really understand, okay, talk to me about the last time you, you bought a specific product. Which, which problem were you trying to solve? You know, not, you know, why do you like this product per se? What were you trying to get done? I was trying to increase sales. That was the biggest target that I got from, you know, from my boss. <laughs> and then you start to uh, you explain, you ask them to explain a little bit. Okay, walk me through the process. When you purchased this, what were the criteria you started to look at that? And how do you think this particular product helped you with those jobs, pains, and gains? So you always need to map it back to very, if you can, to specific instances, not, oh, what do you want? Like, you know, what do you desire? What would, would you buy this? And those are questions that will lead to opinion. The last thing you want from customers is to describe opinion. Or, you know, I like to use this example of tooth whitening. So you have this amazing device that can do tooth whitening, right? You, you ask things like, oh, when's the last time you Googled tooth whitening? What led you to do that? And you start to, to identify the underlying motivations, what we call jobs to be done, the whole theory by Clayton Christensen and Tony Ulwick. There's a whole body, you know, around that whole theory. And you need to unearth those underlying motivations, hopefully with situations that they really went through. Even for non-existing, you know, kind of products or services, every new revolutionary product attaches to some pre-existing jobs, pains, and gains. They just happen to unearth something that wasn't there before nothing satisfied that right so you need to go ask those questions so i love it ne next with pains specifically i've got somebody we're talking about this we're saying hey when you had this go on before what was you know when when you looked at our competitor's product what what were what were you hoping for these kind of jobs questions that recalling history instead of projecting the future right i'm excited we got bob mesta actually just agreed to come on the show so he's gonna come talk awesome about yeah he does but, great work around that yeah but what about pains any any example questions about pains that might be a better pain question than so first of all you try to to unearth the pains and there's some exercises so first you start with questions so you ask what are the things that are holding you back from doing from getting that job done what are what are the things that are holding you back from getting that done well Oh, you know, there's this that's not working, there's that. But then you also need to unearth the fears. What are the things that you fear? It might be completely irrational. 
right? So somebody who's never bought an electric vehicle doesn't know that many of them have a pretty, you know, strong autonomy now, and that it's very unlikely that you'll run out of uh, battery power because the, the technology and the software is pretty sophisticated. But you need to identify their fears if they have never bought something. What, what are the things you fear? Potential <laughs> pains, right? You need to identify that as well. But the next thing you would want to do is start to understand the most important pains. And you could ask, what's the biggest pain? But I don't really like that exercise. I think that should be more visual. So Luke Holman came up with this exercise called speedboat, where you put a boat on a wall or on a virtual white space, and you say, this is your job to be done, right? You're trying to increase sales by 10%. What are all of the anchors that are holding you back from getting that job done? And then all of the pains will come up. And you say, the lower down you put that anchor, make a sticky note for every pain, everything that's holding you back. The lower down the anchor, the bigger the pain. And all of a sudden, once they have five sticky notes there, they will put them in relationship. And they will say, oh, actually, this one is really important. And they'll put it further down because they can see the other two they mentioned before. If you just do this in an interview, they will already have forgotten what they mentioned to you before. And they will get stuck in their own completely illogical thinking because they're just thinking out loud. But when you visualize it with them and you start to say, oh, but didn't you say this one was really important and that's really high up? And then they start to change it. So using these techniques, in addition to the very simple kind of uh, interview questions, very powerful. Another technique is card sort, right? You make visual cards of different jobs, pains, and gains, specifically about pains. Put those five pains on a table and you ask them to kind of force rank them. That's another technique. So by using different techniques, you'll get a much better picture at the end of the day. And I just want to confirm that. Are we talking about the pains that our product, that our solution be helping with? Or the pains, the anchors that are keeping them from a solution like ours? Or both? So, so you would first just try to start independently of your solutions. So the more neutral you are, the better. It's almost like you're putting yourself into your customer's shoes you forget that you're a solution provider. You even forget which industry, because sometimes when you innovate, the pivot is much bigger than just an additional feature or getting the features right. I'll give you an example of that in a second. So you have to stay very neutral and get a deep understanding of customers. Great example of a big shift of a business model is Hilti. It's a company that makes or made light machine tools for builders and sold them. Okay, so it was a sales business model. But then there were a lot of low-cost Asian manufacturers that came up with great products that were just as good, not the same brand, but they were under pressure. So what they try to figure out is what do our customers really care about? Not just about tools they want to buy, but what's their biggest struggle? So it turns out it's absolutely not buying the tools. It's not even buying the best tools. It's managing a fleet of tools, having the right tool at the right construction site at the right time. That was the biggest pain. So they said, well, better tools is not going to help with that job. What if we came up with a fleet management service where Hilti makes sure that the right tool is at the right construction site at the right time, and all our customers have to do is put you know, a series of tools into their digital tool fleet management system and say they need that tool at that construction site. Hilti takes care of the rest. You can only figure that out if you have a deep customer understanding beyond your existing solutions. So the rule of thumb is you want big innovation. You need a deep, broad understanding of your customers. You want incremental innovation. You can think with your solution in mind and go very, very narrow and deep to understand the nuances. 
but you won't get you know, big disruptive innovation if you already have your solution in mind because you're going to be stuck in what you're already doing. And that's the biggest challenge for most companies, breaking out of their existing business model. Most companies will never do that. And those are usually the companies that disappear. Kodak being a beautiful example of a company that wasn't able to dramatically shift their business model. It's not that they didn't try, but they didn't take it seriously enough. Kodak disappeared Fujifilm, on the other hand, made that huge shift because they shifted into actually even a completely different customer segment. That's a different story. (laughs) I love it. Listen, I think we should end part one of the interview here, but I want to continue this conversation on part two. Everybody tune in to part two. We're going to come get some more of Alex's wisdom here. Alex, thanks for doing this. Sounds good.